Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, where our guest today is Mitzi Perdue. Mitzi is a businesswoman. She's an author, a writer, a master storyteller. She is also the daughter of one business titan of industry and wife of, an, of another. Her father was the president and co-founder of Sheraton Hotels, and her husband was the poultry magnate, you guessed it, Frank Perdue. You're going to love what Mitzi has to share about paying the price of leadership. You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Tracy Jones. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and talk with tremendous leaders all over the globe about what it took them to pay the price of leadership. And today, my very special guest is Mitzi Purdue. And I want you to think about that last name for a minute. Let me tell you a little bit about Mitzi. Mitzi is a businesswoman. She's an author and a master storyteller. She holds degrees from Harvard University and George Washington University, is the past president of the 35,000 member American Agri Women, and was one of the US delegates to the United Nations Conference on Women in Nairobi. She is currently writing for the Academy of Women's Health and GEN Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Mitzi Purdue is the daughter of, of one business titan and the wife of another. Her father was president and co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel chain, and her husband was the poultry magnet, that's right, Mr. Frank Purdue. Mitzi shares leadership secrets that only a daughter or wife would know. And Mitzi, I am so excited on so many tremendous levels to have you as my guest today. Thank you for being my guest. Well, it's a total tremendous joy to be with you, including that I was an admirer of your father dating back 40 years ago. Wow. So you got to cross paths with him before. Is that correct? Well, I'm a member of the National Speakers Association. And I can remember back then, one of the first sessions I ever attended was given by your father. And he said something that I've remembered for 40 years. And it's, and by the way, the National Speakers Association tells you as a speaker, remember that most people won't remember anything you say mm -hmm. a week later. Well, now it's 40 years later. And I remember that your father said that five years from now, the difference between who you are now and who you will be five years from now is the people you meet and the books that you read. And that has been so true that it has literally guided my life. Oh. I got goosebumps and I love that. And that is so good also for leaders to hear, you know, most people it's in one ear and out the other. And it, it's just, it's just how we are as people. So I, I love that too. Um, and, and Mitzi, um, I got connected for our tremendous listeners. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe Tracy's talking to Mitzi Purdue. I got connected through Mitzi through uh, tremendous Mark Victor Hansen. And he was on last week and he has just as every unbelievable advocate and true friend does, he's like, my connections are your connections. So he put me in touch with Mitzi. And that, Mark, thank you so much for this. And uh, people loved his interview. And Mitzi, we're just so excited to hear about um, your experience, not only an, uh, you know, as a woman, uh, number two, running a family business. So that runs very near and dear to my heart. But, um, you know, for just carving out your own niche and background and seeing just 
being raised by incredible leaders and entrepreneurs and what you picked up from them. And that just is, um, you know, people you meet, there's also books. I, dad would tell people, if you haven't had a lot of great people, you can have a lot of great people through books. So thank you, Mitzi. And thank you for sharing that story about my father. I'm delighted you got to hear him in this realm. Well, I think it's got to be close to a miracle that this little brain could retain something for 40 years. He had to be, he had to be really special for that to work. Yeah, he, he, he was. And, and we, we get calls from people. I get calls from people in their 90s and stuff saying, you know, back 70 years ago, I remember this and I'm like, now that's somebody making an impact. So we're yes. going to continue talking about his writing. One of the, his top speaking topic, he was known as a motivator and a, and a, a keynote, a motivator and enthusiast, but also he was quite passionate about leadership. And his booklet, his number one speech was called The Price of Leadership. And in it, it was very pragmatic, very poignant, but it talked about the hard side of leadership. And Mitzi, he lays out four prices that you have to pay as a leader if you're going to wear the leadership mantle. And the first of those he cites is loneliness. And we've all heard that it's lonely at the top and we've all felt that at one time or another. But can you explain to me throughout your career or what you've observed throughout other leaders, what loneliness as a leader means to you, maybe where you've experienced it and what you'd like to share with the, our leaders that are listening, maybe that are in the season of loneliness. Well, it's as real as can be. And I can remember in the case of my father, this is just a quick little story from my childhood. But when I was somewhere around maybe 10 or 11, I was changing schools. My parents were big believers that their kids should go to public schools as well as private schools. I was about to go to the local public school. Couldn't sleep all night because I was worried. You know, what, what are they going to think of me? What's it going to be like to make new friends? And my father the next morning, because he was a good father. He was a captain of industry, but he was also a good daddy. Hmm. And he noticed that I was kind of upset. And he said, you know, what, what's wrong? And I told him, I'm afraid that nobody will like me. And here's what I learned from him. He, first of all, he was very kind. He said, uh, yeah, don't, don't worry, because you're likable. Of course, they're going to like you. Oh. Mm -hmm. What a neat thing, reaffirming thing. But then he said, Plus, it's perfectly possible to get along without friends. And you know, that's kind of shocking. But he said, he said, in my whole life, I've only had one friend. And then, of course, there's my mother. But uh, how, um, imagine the loneliness of I've only had one friend. You, that, and by the way, his friend was his roommate from college who became his partner in co-founding the whole Sheraton Hotel chain. Oh my gosh. So it was a really close friendship, but uh, what, what he must have given up in a mm -hmm. social life. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, I witnessed that he gave it up, but I do think that he got his social emotional needs met because he was very much a family man. Yes. He used to, he, used to, he put a tremendous effort into teaching his five kids values. He didn't want us to grow up to be what we used to call the kids who suffer rich man's disease, mm -hmm. that they're out of touch, that they can't earn a living, that they can't interact with people. Uh, so I, I think he just loved just kind of nestling in, as, as a father surrounded by five kids who adored him. So he, there was loneliness at the top, but the compensation I think was that, that he got, he was fed emotionally by, by family. Mm. 
and then and then I can even talk about Frank Perdue. Yes. Uh, Frank Perdue was was a sociable person, but I, as his wife, got to witness who his close friends were, and how about two? And, but I hope I was his best friend, so that um, so that I'm very into helping a guy at the top. Yeah. Uh, deal with the loneliness at the top. But but my mother said uh, that that she had also witnessed that it it is, I mean, how about it's just plain a fact and you got to deal with it. Oh, right. Uh, it's lonely at the top. The number of people who are going to understand you or that you even have time for is limited. Right. Well, but I do, I do think a way of, of getting around that is I love the idea of mastermind groups. Yes. I, I see that a lot from very, very top people. Mm -hmm. I also think a way of getting around it is there are organizations that one that comes to mind is the steering council of the Library of Congress, and it costs a fortune to be a member of it. But if, if you're at the top and you join an organization that costs a lot to join, you're probably going to be able to hang out with peers and maybe make friends. I think possibly the best cure though is mastermind groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing in today's world because there are things you, you can't share with your family. I know my father, we never saw him disappointed and he shouldered the burden for what he needed to. He let my mother shoulder the burden for what she needed to. But I love that there are mastermind groups now because sometimes you need, well, not sometimes, you need to get counsel and, and share. And, and I, I've been a member of a lot of those. And, you know, somebody will always ask me, you know, Tracy, I know who you're pouring into, but who, who do you get fed from? And I think as leaders, that's critical. That is so critical. But I just love the fact that your father told you just one and you saw from Frank just, and I think there's this misperception amongst leaders that you have to be surrounded by all these raving fans. And you know, it's even biblical, you know, Jesus had his three, he had his 12, but he really had his three that really saw him. And I, I tell people, if you can even just have that one that you know would take a bullet for you, that's really what you need. And then of course your family is such a blessing too, but I love that he poured into you and let you know the reality of, if it's only one, it's okay, it's, it is enough. That's and you beautiful. know, at, at father's funeral, I had something really moving happen, which is uh, his, his roommate from college, who was his partner, his business partner, you know, till, till, the, till the end of my father's life. I met, I met uncle Bob, at my father's funeral, you know, he just looked like death warmed over. You just, I'm, I'm not terribly observant, but even, even at age 28, you know, I could tell this man was just in the last throes of devastation. And so I thought, you know, maybe just to human contact and to talk with him a little bit. Um, I asked, because sometimes it's helpful to people who are bereaved and I'm bereaved, but I could see that he was more shaped than me. Mm. Uh, so just kind of to help him remember, I asked, uh, you know, what was it like working with him? Giving him a chance to remember and talk and reflect. And then I asked him, uh, did you two ever fight? Because you shared an office and a secretary for probably 50 years. And he said, did we ever fight? It would be no more possible for me to fight with your father than for a left hand to fight with the right hand. What? Oh my, now that's, a friend. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So what if, 
what if he only had one? But it was really, was really, enough. really. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was somebody who who they totally understood each other. Right. Uh, they totally worked together. Um, in fact, I used to ask my father, "What's how, how does it work having uh, where does Uncle Bob fit in?" And he said it was just perfect because father's gifts was being were being very innovative, very vision oriented, and Uncle Bob's great ability was to uh, like carry them out. And so you you need both, and they had both, and they built. I love that. They built. Yeah, from one hotel, there were 400 at the time of his death. And you don't have that kind of success unless you've got an amazing balance of what's needed. Right. And then, and then that synergy brings that exponential growth. But I mean, I just, I just think that's so great. And, and for our leaders that are listening out there, I know I used to think, because yes, I was in Fortune 100 companies because I thought bigger was better. Then in 2008, I went to a small second generation company. And there are times when it's just been me and one other person. And I think there's this thing of, well, I have to have 15, 50, I have to be, mm, not necessarily. You know, you need that one right person with you and it, the sky's the limit. You, you can make anything happen. And I remember even in some of my doctoral leadership classes, they told me, yeah, kind of the sweet spot is like two to four. And I'm like, it just took the pressure off me because I thought as a leader, I need to have this cadre of, you know, staff officers around me doing, well, maybe you do and maybe you don't. You know, it just, it really depends. So that's, that's really interesting that he said that. Thank you for sharing that. And actually, you know, this is a somewhat different story, but it has to do with Frank Perdue and the person that, I wouldn't call him a partner, but he was, well, uh, Perdue, at the time of Frank's death, employed 20,000 people. When I first met him, it employed 16,000. There was a man with whom he argued constantly, who worked for the company, and he started out just way low down in the company. I think he was something called a surface man. And a surface man isn't military, it's, if you're growing chickens, you're probably going to want to have somebody who's the equivalent of a veterinarian call on your farm every few days just to check that everything's going right or you've got questions. So a surface man will, the surface man will have a route and he'll go visit, I'm gonna guess maybe in the course of a week, 60 farmers or growers. Well, Don Mabe started out as a surface man. He eventually, uh, became head of the whole company. Frank appointed him head of the whole company. But interestingly, just their entire relationship from, you know, Don may being at one of the lowest ranks to the highest, they were always arguing. But, but I mean, arguing, I'll, I'll describe a, a case where, where I know where they quarreled. It was it was a sales meeting and there were eight people around a table and Don Mabe was at one end and Frank was at another. And all morning they had just been feuding, like somebody described it as being like cats and dogs. And finally at one moment, Don Mabe ripped off his glasses, threw them down on the conference table. They bounced once and hit Frank square in the chest. And as that's going on, Don Mabe is telling Frank, why don't you take up hang gliding which, by the way, is a really hostile thing to say because you get killed real easy that way. <laughs> oh my now, God. You, all right, now you would think that that kind of standing up to the guy whose name is on your paycheck would not be a good career move. No, Frank absolutely valued it. 
he had no use for yes men and the person yes. who, was, who believed strongly in what he um, what he stood for you know enough to challenge the boss himself frank treasured that mm. and so you know when there were promotions to be made don Mabe got them mm -hmm. because uh so you know uncle bob and my father never fought don Mabe and frank constantly as far and as well, I could that's tell. Interesting. But, but in both cases it worked because yes. because it well we know the proof is in the pudding. In both cases the relationships were very productive and long lasting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what it what you know obviously Don May had in him what Frank as a leader was looking for and Frank had what this follower is looking for, and then the same with um, with your father and his business partner. So yeah. it, it's it's. But isn't it amazing that that the dynamic is so opposite and yet ends up in the same place, which is a very productive. Oh, and and what, there's a P.S. to that story. I wasn't there, but I heard it described by somebody, a salesman who was there. But what the salesman who was there didn't know, and what I know is, Frank Purdue. Don Mabe, Flo Mabe, and I had dinner that night, and they were laughing their heads off over take-up hang gliding. See, and that is so cool. So I love yeah, the Frank fact did that not you added that. Yeah, right. Frank, Frank didn't hold a grudge. No. Uh, well, and neither did Don May. That's what I love about it, because a lot of times there's conflict between the boss and the, um, the team members. And then it just festers and you start drawing more and more apart. That's not healthy conflict. But I love the fact that I love spirited um, uh, board meetings. Uh, yeah, and so did Frank. I, I love it because we ought to be calling each other. And what did you say? I mean, I love that. Like parliament, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I love that. But then at the end, we need to all walk away and be able to put that aside. That's the key. Um, but I, I know some people are like, well, they like the contentiousness and then it just breeds that disengagement and that hostility. And for leaders, there's a big difference between that. Um, somebody that can quote, bust your chops and then you come together at the end. I mean, that's how we did it in the military. We'd, we'd call each other every name in the book and then we'd go out and we'd fight together. Um, yeah. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about there's a difference and leaders know it because they can feel it, that somebody's working um, not to, to, to give you feedback, to build you up, but actually to take you down. So it's, it's interesting that- Yeah, all the difference in the world. And in the case of Don Mabe, what, what I know Frank respected about what was going on was if, if you're a yes man, you're not, you're not really respecting the leader. You're not really. No, you're not. No, you're and, not. And, and how about you're more interested in your career than in right. the good of the company? Right. Well, well Don no, May right. loved the company and Frank realized that. Well, he did. And, and you know, because I just got my PhD in leadership, one of the things we really dug into, I don't care about leadership. I want to know about the followers that make the leader the leader that they're meant to be. And one of the things is critical thinking, not critical spirit. But if you have followers that are all in, they're going to warn you. They're going to challenge you. They're going to check you. They're going to exhort you. They're going to, and they're going to respect you, but they're going to let you know everything they see at their level because they are in it with you as the leader. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And yet, and yet there's young, the example of uncle Bob saying that I could no more quarrel with Ernest than I could with my right hand versus the left hand. So what do you make of that? I yeah. mean, but maybe they're just, well, Frank and I almost never quarreled. Uh, and I, I think I could say about Frank that the left hand can't quarrel with the right hand. I mean, we just, because he was so understanding, he was so fair, 
that there was almost no point to arguing with him. Wow. I mean, somebody really understands. It doesn't mean I always got my way, but when you feel completely listened to and understood, uh, it's just not necessary to fight. Right, right. Well, that's why a marriage born out of best friends means, regardless of the conflict, you'll, you'll always go back to being cohorts and best friends to resolve issues versus, you know. Well, I always thought my role was a force multiplier, that we shared goals and that I could, I hope, be useful. Yes, I love it. I love it. All right, Mitzi. So that was loneliness. The next price that my father talked about is weariness. And he would always say, hey, Tracy, if you're going to be doing anything worthwhile, you're always going to have people that are doing more than their share and ones that aren't. But you got to learn to shoulder the load and you've got to stay replenished. And you brought up his quote about he stayed replenished through hanging around great people and reading tremendous books. But Mitzi, how do you stay um, charged up and refreshed and replenished? How, how do you keep from getting world weary and, um, and run down? Well, I, I will comment first on, on the two men that we've been talking about, and then I'll switch over to me. Both of them were tremendous believers in physical fitness. Mm. Uh, father, and he was born in 1897. Uh, so by the time he was in his prime, we didn't have you know, awareness of physical fitness the way we do today. I mean, today everybody talks about it, but he had to be very farsighted because for example, it used to amaze me. I think where we lived and where, where he worked, it was probably a good maybe 40 minutes brisk walk. He, he, you know, he, could, have, he could have had a chauffeur drive him. No, he always walked there and back because wow. he wanted the exercise. Uh, and, and he was also fairly, for drinking, I think he would drink a glass of wine at a meal, but that was it. Mm -hmm. He was totally against smoking. He was very into maintaining his, his weight. And the purpose of all of this, I think, was just to be sort of at your fighting peak, at your best. And Frank Perdue, good Lord, uh, he, was, he was so dedicated to physical fitness. And I'm not sure that I even agree with this, but I'll describe it. Uh, I'm a big believer that you should get seven or eight hours sleep. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely fine with four hours. Mm -hmm. And if, say there's a plane to catch, and if he didn't cut back by 20 minutes of sleep, he wouldn't get any exercise that day. Uh, he might get three and a half hours sleep, but he would, he'd be on the treadmill, uh, you know, working really hard. Mm. And then, uh, well, I mean, and like father, he was very careful of what he ate. He was very careful about alcohol consumption. In fact, I'd say they're rather parallel. Mm -hmm. And I, by the way, I'm not recommending to anybody uh, four hours sleep. I, but it did seem to work for him. And he, it he, worked for my dad. He did that. Really? People would call and he'd pick up the phone at four in the morning and they're like, what? From all over the world. He's like, yeah. I, I, some people, I'm like you, I'm an eight hour a night girl. Well, I don't care. I, I love my eight hours, but, but he really and truly could do four. He was optimal at four. Mm -hmm. I, I guess we just have to, I mean, you know that I, that I have a background of writing on genetics, so I guess we just have to accept that we're wired differently. Yes. But, but Frank didn't skip. He didn't sleep in. He, he made sure that he got his exercise 
every single day. So he's very disciplined about it. And I think the purpose was so that he'd be at peak form. Well, Mitzi, almost every leader that we've had on has said they're in bed by 9.30 and they're up at 4.30. And really? they're either working out, praying, meditating, thinking, whatever, setting out the day. Um, so yeah, they get their seven hours, but they are up early and they are incredibly disciplined about it. Uh, discipline seems to me the word that either discipline or conscientious, but mm -hmm. both men were the same. They, they didn't they didn't slack off as far as things that would keep them at their physical best. Nice. I love it. I love it. And how about you? What, what are your tips for staying so vibrant and in the game and, and leading people forward and doing all the things that you do? Okay. I'm 79 and proud of it. What? But yes. No way. Are you way. kidding me? No. Girl, you're just getting started. Man, you look <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, but but I share their view. I mean, I want my seven or eight hours, and preferably eight, but uh, I, I can manage pretty well in seven, but I like eight. But I enjoy adult beverages as much as anybody, but I make a very sincere effort not to have more than a glass at a time, a glass in a day, mm -hmm. uh, which is something of a sacrifice because I really like it, and I'm much more sociable. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I'm doing during... COVID-19 during the, the pandemic, I, I have virtual dates. I mean, I, I have happy hours with all sorts of people and I love it. But, but wait, that's not on physical fitness, unless it is because uh, we know, and now you're having me as a health writer and I'm not out to prescribe for anybody, but I will say what authorities tell me is that the pandemic, and we all know this, no, I don't think anybody's gonna quarrel on this, the pandemic is stressful. Mm. It's stressful, whether it's financial or relationship or your job, your career, just being upset. One way or another, it's high levels of stress, which means that you are just being bathed in, in the stress chemicals. Mm -hmm. And how about, Nature didn't design us to be I know. under stress, right. with long, unalleviated stress. Mm -hmm. I mean, stress is just wonderful if you have to run away from it. You know, the lion is chasing after you in the, in the savannah or something. But it, I don't think nature intended us to be under extreme stress for months and months and months at a time. Correct. So the advice that I would give everybody, and this is the kind of thing that I give in the book that I wrote with Mark Victor Hansen. Ah, okay. It's absolutely essential to give yourself respite. Mm. You need time to have those stress chemicals like not coursing through you and wearing you down. And by respite, I can't know what would provide respite for you, but I'll define what we're after. We're after something that you, some activity that you can do where you're not thinking that, oh my God, I can't pay my rent or I'm going to lose my job or, or, my boyfriend or my girlfriend is going to get tired of me and mm. whatever. Uh, or you know, a really big one is I've got four kids at home and uh, they're driving me nuts and I've got to homeschool them on top of my uh, working at, you know, still having my job. Okay. So the point of all that is that you don't get through this without stress. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of things that people have told me that work, I'll tell you what works for me. And what we're after is 
a period of time when you're just not thinking of the, of the worries that are eating you alive. Okay. Things that will just make those stress hormones go away and give you respite. Uh, I really like watching YouTube animals being rescued. Baby fawns that find their mothers or... <laughs> There, and by the way, there's a zillion animal things that you can watch on YouTube. That, when I'm watching a baby fawn that's, you know, it's been rescued from a ditch or something and it gets up and it finds its mother and starts to nurse, I'm not feeling stressed. Uh, but other people tell me that watching James Bond movies, other people tell me that, uh, I don't know, playing the violin, mm -hmm. just, or, or a puzzle or running or whatever it does. But mm. I think it's really almost a matter of life and death It is that, that you right. give yourself at least an hour of respite. And I'm not going to call it escapism because it's not, it's right. I think it's medically necessary. Right. So that, that is the kind of thing that I work really hard myself to make sure that during stressful times, that there's some time when I, I'm not thinking about it. Yeah, you have to unplug and recharge um, yeah. daily. We're not we're not machines, and even machines need to be plugged in for updates. I mean, yeah. So I love the respite word. I mean that that that's that's a beautiful word, uh, especially if you're caring for somebody else. Oh. Uh, yeah, it, I have a niece who runs a nursing home, and what I'm going to describe. There are lots of medical people who agree with her, but I will tell it from her point of view. She says that people who are long-term caregivers for terminal people are a third a third of them are going to die before the people they're taking care of because they don't get if they don't get respite mm. the stress is going to wreck their immune system and their it's right it's it's literally dangerous it not is. to have respite right well, I mean, you know, the, what they say, you know, don't let your body catch a disease of the mind and that stress, the long-term effect of stress are one of the biggest drivers of, you know, the out-of-sight healthcare stuff and the bad habits that are associated with non-productive ways of dealing with stress, overeating, smoking, drugs. I mean, you know, checking out, that, that, that's not how, but I love um, self-care. You've got, we, we, no matter what our vision is, we still have to take care of this mortal coil. Otherwise, and tell me some of the things that you would use to just unplug. What, mm -hmm. what, what way would you do it? What's that? To do the things that for, I unplug? For you. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've told you that I, I love watching happy animal <laughs> rescues. Well, for me, for me, because to me, if I'm learning um, or researching, that's when I'm most alive. So um, I will, but I do, I work out. My husband put a home gym uh, there. So I really think I get my best creative ideas, home gym. Um, I also Sabbath one day a week where I just, I check out of everything. I think that's very wow. important. If God rested, you know, we need to rest too. And, I love um, that. I love that. I love that. Oh yeah. Where I just say no. And it's tough because typically it's Sunday. And if it's a really juicy teacher or pre I've got like 20 pages of notes and it's like, okay, Trace, but just listen. You can write your 20 blogs as a result of what you heard after. Um, but I don't get on social media and I really don't even check the phone. And it's just so nice because that way, Mitzi, I make sure everything that was supposed to get done Sunday gets done in the other six days. And you just prioritize your week according to it. And it has made me um, going into Monday. How can you go into Monday if you're so spun out and strung out from the weekend of stressing and you know, 
and, and all this stuff. But my thing is really getting in great books, um, you know, taking time to pray, get in the word, listen, listen to God because um, he know he has the answers. So I can only figure out maybe one of them, but he knows like all of them. So, so it's How beautiful, just, you know, being quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the peace that passeth understanding. Yes. Yes. Uh, we know where that comes from. Well, I think that, and when I tell people, I'm like, you know what? I only even pray for success. I pray for wisdom because with wisdom comes peace. Because like you said, even from your husband and your father, no matter what else, who disagrees or how bleak stuff looks, when you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you got that peace. And I'll tell you what, for leadership, give me peace because you don't know how so much of the rest of it is going to turn out. But give me one person to fight the battles with me and just give me clarity so I can have peace. So the peace is a huge thing. And it's, it's so healthy. It is so healthy. Because you know what? I'm going to define peace. I'm, I'm making this up as we go along, but it seems to me right. Uh, peace has a lot to do with not having cortisol and adrenaline yes. rushing through you. Right, right. And you got the you got the good things, the endorphins. You, you, yeah. you got the good things. And 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 you know, there was a chemical thing to people would be to my dad, how is he always like that? And I'm like, he's always like that because he's always infusing himself with positive thoughts, positive people, positive input, positive books. Therefore, his brain has rewired itself to have tremendous positive dopamine and endorphins coursing through 24-7. And, you know, he literally, that's who he was. And he had to be this efficacious personality because then you got to vent it. You got to vent that positivity and you got to pour out to other people. So there's a real, you know, as well as I do, there's a real science to it. It's not just a, a Pollyanna trick of the mind or I'm going to, I've heard this fake it till you make it. Eh, I don't want to fake it. I want to feel No, it. I really believe it. I am a positive person. Right. I, I right. just am. That's me. Right. I can tell that. Yeah. And I think people can tell that too. And, and yes, there are days when I'll get up and act tremendous when I don't feel it because then, then your uh, feelings catch up with your actions. That's a beautiful thing. So, well, yeah. I have a deep belief that the outside, you know, how you dress, how you do your hair, makeup for guys, um, I don't know how you shave, whatever it is, that there's just a huge relationship between the outside and the inside. Absolutely. And if the outside's a mess, uh, that's going to affect the inside. Absolutely. On the other hand, uh, I'll tell you something that I've done through the entire pandemic, even though I've been sheltering in place. Uh, I still get, a, I still dress every day as attractively as I can. I yeah. put on my makeup, I do my hair, because that gives me energy. That, it's kind of like a self-respect thing. Right. Well, they even said that in like Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, even the prisoner of war, people that were in the Holocaust, even yes. if they didn't have toothpaste or clean water, just going through the motion of doing a semblance of taking care of yourself did incredible things for the will to live and to survive and reminding yourself what it means to be a human. So um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's an awful lot, awful lot to be said for that. Still show up, even if you're not there. Well, I'm thinking I, in my life, I have logged in many hours of doing, uh, working in, volunteering in nursing homes and also for hospice. And I got to observe something that uh, maybe lots of people know, but I find it fascinating. There are volunteers, and I'm not one of what I'm about to describe, but there are volunteers who will go into nursing homes and do the resident's hair, uh, makeup. And then I, as a volunteer who are talking with them, like before and after, get to see that the difference is st 
staggering. It makes me just the deepest believer in the world that the outside and the inside are incredibly closely related. Right. Right. And my mother-in-law just turned 101 really? and they do her hair up and I'm like, Oh, Monica, you look so good. And she can tell she's like, Oh, my hair. And then when it's done, she's like, you know, look at the, look at this. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. Okay. So Mitzi, we talked loneliness. We talked weariness. The next price my father talks about abandonment. And typically it's like, Oh, fear of abandonment. But my father really talked about to be a leader, you have to abandon what you like and want to think about or do in favor of what you ought and need to think about and do. Can you share with me? Obviously you, you were with some men that were leaders in their ability to abandon everything, to focus on the one compelling vision. But can you share with me uh, maybe some stories about how you witness that or how you get clarity for yourself and your accomplishments? In a way, what I was saying about both men having either one or only two friends, how about that's an example of it? Wow. Because, I mean, yes, they, they were, yeah, they weren't social butterflies who yes. would go out to the bars drinking. Uh, they, no, they, I used to think that in the case of both men, that they, they valued every minute so much that they weren't going to squander it and things that that took them away from from their goals. That my father would say that's the truest definition. He would say that we do more in our day to guarantee our failure than we do our success by just what you're talking about. Not being, not having a sense of urgency that every second counts, every word counts. And just how you said that, that every minute is an investment in their future. So you want to spend it wisely. Okay. I'll tell you something. Oh, this is so personal. I probably shouldn't say it, but I guess I've got everybody's attention. I'll, I'll tell you how the, the extent to which I value every second, you know, I'm always looking for ways of getting more done in a day because there are things I believe in. What my, my big cause is anti-human trafficking. And we can get into that if you want, but I think I'd love to. I want to hear more about that. Okay, but I figure that every second that I waste is time that I'm not spending. Right. But I guess that's later on in vision. But on, on abandonment, I'm going to talk about abandoning comfort. I've discovered, I timed it, that... I take a shower every morning when I wake up. I used to spend 50 seconds waiting for the shower to warm up. I've discovered I can save 50 seconds of my life by getting into the cold shower. Wow. I yeah. also think I also think that's probably good for a person to have thermal resilience and not They say be... that. Yeah. Okay, it so is. I think yeah. it, I think it's actively good for me, but it does save me 50 seconds because I can lather up and then by the time it's warm, it can wash off. So uh, let's see. So let's let's assume it's a minute a day, uh, 365 a year. Uh, I mean, it counts. I love that, Mitzi. That's that's awesome, and that's that's that conscientiousness that this could be your last day. So you you want to finish that race strong. You know what I'm saying? You want to, and yes, we take time for self care and to respite and stuff like that. But but I, I think I often tell people, what if you were like a lawyer and you build every every moment of your day? At the end of the day, where would you have spent the majority of your time? You know, like lawyers bill you, well, I did this many hours of this, and and yeah. I think we'd be surprised at you know, are we really as productive as we like to think that we are, you know? 
That makes me think of something that I once heard Frank's greatest rival. They were total frenemies, and that's Don Tyson. I mean, oh, I think, sure. Okay. Well, I think they really liked each other, and they were rivals on a titanic scale. Wow. But, but even so, we used to spend a week with him in England every year. And to me, it's, you know, since I'm interested in leadership and I'm a writer by trade, I just, you know, this is, this, this is heaven listening to these two brilliant men talk. And one of the things I remember from Don Tyson was, he was saying, I don't have time to have a bad time. I just can't fit it in in my schedule. I love that. And I, I don't have time to have a bad time. I just can't fit it into my schedule. That is brilliant. I thought it was worth memorizing. Oh my gosh. Or I don't have time to have a bad conversation or a non-value added conversation. I don't have time to fit it into my schedule. Wow. Incredible. I'm writing that down. Even though I'm recording this, I'm still writing that down. Oh. All right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, surely you, you saw the height of, um, and anybody that's had the blessing or the privilege of working alongside a great leaders understand how they just dial it in. They drill it down, they dial it in, and then they drive it forward. And I think that is... Um, that, that hyper-focus is just one of the key traits of leadership because not everybody sees it and they're like, what? But they see, they, they can see the end before we do, you know, kind of thing. I remember when, when Frank got into advertising because he, he was famous for a number of things, but among them, he was the first person who ever advertised a commodity. Oh. Before, yeah, before Frank Perdue, I think it was, I think we're talking 1968. It was just the received wisdom in the whole advertising world that you don't advertise a commodity because if you advertise chickens, you might be helping the whole industry. But as far as you benefiting, it's sort of money down the drain. Wow. And Frank was certain that the received wisdom was wrong. And okay, here's a case of abandoning something for a, like a bigger goal. He told me that he took off 10 weeks 10 whole weeks from running his company, moved to New York and spent 10 weeks in a total immersion, self-taught course of learning about advertising. Mm. And he joined, I think it's the American Association of Manufacturers, not sure of the name, but they had a huge library and he just, you know, he'd read every book that he could on advertising, then he'd read the magazines, then he'd call up the professors who had written the articles and mm -hmm. you know, picked their brains still further. And then again, because he was going against the received wisdom of the world, uh, he visited every butcher shop in New York. He made a grid of the radio, television, newspaper stations or offices and talked with the sales manager of every single one. And in the end had hundreds and hundreds of notes of what it takes to be a good advertiser. Mm -hmm. And then to pick the advertising agency and their records of this, he interviewed 66 advertising agencies before selecting the best. Oh my gosh. That's so, incredible. All right. So his success meant total immersion, total abandonment of everything else going on in his life and just total extreme focus so that at the end he knew more about advertising than any poultry person had ever known before. And the results of it were, when Purdue Farms started, there were 5,000 growers in, on the eastern shore of Maryland, or, or uh, 
I guess Delaware's and, and Virginia's included too, but 5,000 growers of which he was one. Mm -hmm. But by the time of his passing, he was in the top three poultry companies in the country. And advertising probably had an awful lot to do with it. And he had, he had the vision, which actually I know is one of your father's big leadership. That's the next questions. one, vision. Yep, yep, yep. Well, can we segue into vision then? Please, I would love to hear that. Okay. All right, the, he had a vision that he wanted to have the best poultry products, but if you're gonna have the best, how about you have to improve the feed, you have to improve the genetics, you have to give them more space. There's just so much that goes into producing a meatier, better bird. Mm -hmm. And that's expensive. So his vision was that he felt that if he was going to have the best, he had to let the consumers know why this is better and why, why it's worth it. Why you're it. getting your money's worth to pay a premium. And that's why he did, you know, he, he figured out where he wanted to be. Yes. And yes. to get there, he had to communicate with the non-farm public about why this is a, a superior product. And, you know, he followed the logic. Well, that probably means advertising. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another thing, he didn't want to be in the ads whatsoever. Uh, he's, he was at heart a shy man. He had never been in school play. And so he was arguing with everybody, everybody who was connected with the decision of like the advertising agency, what the script would be and so forth. And the conclusion that, that the advertising uh, company came to was recent commodities aren't uh, advertised is that anybody else can copy whatever you say. But the, the guy, Ed McCabe, who was the copywriter, mm -hmm. He said, Mr. Purdue, there's one thing that they can't copy, that your competitors can't copy. You look like a chicken, you squawk like a chicken, <laughs> and you relate so closely to the product that nobody can copy that. Oh my God. You have to be in it. Well, Frank said, I really don't want to, you know, I hate the idea of being in the camera. Uh, he spent months learning how to perform and how to be an actor. And, you know, they say, all you have to do is be yourself, but guess what? It takes extraordinary practice and skill to let the real you yeah. shine through. Because otherwise you're kind of stilted and awkward and to, to be yourself takes more effort than you would expect. Wow. And I think, I think he became utterly Olympic level genius at <laughs> having the real Frank come through. But that, that, that takes more effort than you'd think. Yes. Oh my gosh, Mitzi, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And I mean, I think some people think, well, vision, I go up into the mountaintop and it comes down. No, you got to work vision out. He knew what he needed to do. He got clarity on it. He drilled down. He did the research. And then when he knew exactly what he wanted to do, he interviewed, what'd you say, 66 advertising companies. So he knew exactly what he was looking for to execute on his vision. Because vision, without really finding the people to partner with, to bring it to reality, those leaders out there, we've probably all made poor advertising decisions or marketing decisions where we haven't done our homework enough and just the money's poof and nothing to show. So I love that story of that. And that's one of the incredible. things that I think is unusual about that story is, I mean, he was head of a Fortune 500 size company. Right. He didn't delegate it. 
Right. You realize this was so important. If I get this right, the company's going to do well. If I get it wrong, it's money down the drain. And, and for our leaders out there too, I think sometimes we're like, well, don't be doing that. You need to work on the business, not in the business. But I love you said that, Mitzi, because that's one of the things after being back here 12 years, I'm coming to the thing. I need to, I need to research this. I need to do the homework. I, this is not something I can delegate or outsource. I need to know, like you said, I need to know how to let the consumer know why this leadership podcast, this leadership content is better than what else is out there. And I'm so glad you brought that up. By the way, I'm totally in favor of delegating most things. Right. But but this is something that the company right. grows or dies. Right. Depending right. on whether you got it right or not. Well, and advertising and marketing, you know, like I said, if you don't watch it, it's money coming off your bottom line that never comes back. So it really is, it's how you grow. And, uh, and that's why that, that it's just not a, a side thing that you have to have. But I mean, I love that, that he was really hands-on about that and really intentional about where to put his investment and what the message needed to be. I mean, can you imagine 10 weeks of calling on every butcher, every sales manager? That's yeah. so encouraging. I love but it that. was, but there was so much vision involved in that because he knew where he wanted to be and right, and he knew the steps to get there. Well, and I love it because sometimes we get the vision. We're like, yeah, ready, set, go. Mm, maybe no. Um, oh. He did the preparation. He set the framework. Knowing where you want to go, you still got to flesh out what's to come because otherwise everybody's like, well, I'm not in your head, leader. I don't know what you're talking about. So I love that he was. He took the time, and rolled up his sleeves and did the work. Oh, I love that. That's brilliant. Well, he's certainly the smartest person I'll ever be near. <laughs> wow. But uh, is, that is so cool. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, Mitzi, we talked about loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision. Anything else that we haven't hit on that you would like to share with our listeners on leadership um, that you would like to just, um, just to leave them with to unpack or chew on? Yes. Uh, and this has to do with Mark Victor Hansen. And... We wrote a book together, it's How to Be Up and Down Time, and it takes advantage of that he's one of the most inspirational people on the planet. I mean, he's sold half a billion books. Right. And I've been a science and health writer for, how about almost all my adult life, and in the course of that time, you know, I've interviewed some really brilliant people who know an awful lot that's not generally known by the public. Uh -huh. And so this is, these are 40 tips that come nice. from Mark, and me, and okay. also his stepson. And it's inexpensive. It's $4.58 on Amazon. Wow. And it, it's a $20 book, but we wrote this book. At okay. the, we, we, we began writing it at the very beginning of February because we knew that the kind of stresses people were going to be up against during COVID-19 mm -hmm. that we wanted to help. So the price is low so people can afford it. But now an inside story about Mark Victor Henson, because I've been talking about Frank Perdue and Ernest Henderson, but let's bring Mark into this. Mark taught me something that I found just amazing. One day, he told me in a phone call, Missy, I know that you like to do Photoshop. I would like you to write across the top of the book more than a million copies sold. 
And I said, but, but Mark, that sounds like false advertising. And he said, no, that's not the point. We're not going to, we're not going to you know, put it on the cover of the real book. No, I want, you to, I want you to print out five copies of it. And I want you to put one uh, like in your bathroom mirror, yeah. one in the kitchen, one in the stairwell, one in the office. Uh, and the idea is to visualize selling a million copies. And he said, a couple of things are going to happen. When you visualize it, it, you'll, it will occur to you ways to get there. Yes, yes. And, and that's yes. so true. But there's, it, it's also, I guess it's the, the law of attraction. But you know, shortly after I printed these things up, I got an email from a woman whom I don't know in Taiwan uh, telling me that she had already ordered 200 books and wanted to explore what, dis what discount there would be for a thousand because she thought it was so what people needed during this time of, of stress and, and just a difficult, well, down times. Mm -hmm. I and, love that. And yeah, you know, would she have written me if I hadn't put that sell a million copies thing? I, I know, but like you said, you hit the nail on the head because people are like, oh, the law of attraction. Well, and the, but, but what you, you, it's that creative spark. Um, it will Focus. occur ways to get there. And that we, we still have to have the creative momentum. Uh, 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 you know, you're not going to sell a million bucks just by wishing it so, but by putting it in your mind, previously unrecognized opportunities are going to, because it's already in there. Obviously, yeah. you can sell a million books. People do it. You just don't know how to get there. But by writing it down, that starts your mind in the back of your subconscious going, mm, okay, how are we going to do it? I love that. I love how you said that. Uh, it, it was a really exciting thing to learn. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know what? I'm an operations person. I don't write a lot of stuff down. I just do. Okay. I don't need to write it down. I'm just doing it. But I have been more convinced in my last two years of really research and doing the podcast, you got to write it down. And, and, and the importance of that, I'm like, I don't need to write it down. I know what I'm doing. But like you said, putting that there, seeing it, that's your goal, dreaming it, letting, letting it start mulling over in your subconscious. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, but, but, and and well, his a million listens. Listen to our interview. <laughs> and by the way, they can get it. Uh, they can get five chapters free if they go to at Mitzi.com. Okay. And at is spelled like uncle, except it's at. A -U -N -T, I love that. Oh, at Mitzi.com. I love it. Well, we're going to put that link at the bottom for our listeners. We'll have the link. Now, Mitzi, we're going to have how they get a hold of you. We're going to have the book, all that stuff. But how do people reach out? What's the best way to connect with you? Uh, write to me at Mitzi at, at Mitzi.com. I love it. And, and I spend a lot of time answering emails because I really, really, really enjoy connecting. Mm -hmm. I love it. Actually, it's one of the greatest pleasure, to me, one of the greatest pleasures in life is communicating. Well, that's why we're put on this planet. No, we're not meant to go it alone, even with COVID, more so with COVID. So, oh my gosh. Well, Mitzi, I just want to thank you so much for what you've shared, what you've taught me. I know our leaders are just going to be just totally excited and energized about this. I hope uh, for our leaders out there, if you liked it, please do us the honor of a review, share it definitely hit the subscribe button, reach out to Mitzi, uh, reach out to Tremendous Leadership, and let, let us know. I answer all the comments on the YouTube channel about what you heard or thought as a result of something you heard. And we just both really hope that you were tremendously inspired and blessed as a result of this interview. Mitzi, thank you so much for joining us.
Well, it's been a tremendous pleasure. And I hope, sister, that we are connected in the years and years and years to come, because I just, uh, you have been quite the inspiration to me, and I'm honored to have you part of our tremendous tribe. Well, I'm so honored to be part of it, and especially since I admired your father so much. Well, it's beautiful now to, now that the leadership mantle is on you and passing off, uh, that I'm finally stepping up to the plate. And I thank you for being there to guide the way for so many. And uh, just looking forward to more and more of this. Thank you so much. All right, to our tremendous listeners, have a tremendous day. And remember, you're going to be the same person five years from now that you are today, except for two things. Right, Mitzi? People right. you meet, books you read. So we got a tremendous one for you to read. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.